God, the world that we find ourselves in is complicated. It is complex and difficult, intricate and tricky to navigate sometimes. And COVID days and living has perhaps compounded the complications life presents. But here we are. We are doing our best to work, study, stay healthy, nurture friendships, and find comfort in our support systems and families. Amidst the unpredictable and uncertain parts of our days, may we see glimpses of peace that will still our hearts and minds and souls. In the face of negativity and divisiveness, may we see glimpses of your love and of your image in others. When we are overwhelmed by injustice, may we find glimpses of your hope, encouraging us to continue to do ministry where it is needed. And in these glimpses, may we see you and your powerful presence in the world. May these glimpses remind us of the good news of your unending love and grace for all people and all of creation, empowering us to be peacemakers and ambassadors for kindness, dignity, and shalom. In all we do, help us to remember that you have claimed the whole of humanity as your children, that you have claimed the world as your valued and loved handiwork, and guide us to live as disciples of the Christ who showed us how to live in ways that honor you and who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The witness of scripture this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I see I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, 
reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth.
author and minister Jake Owensby reflects on the love he received from his grandmother, who he described as a reserved woman of German descent, five feet tall, with long, straight white hair, and not inclined to giving hugs or saying, I love you, but whose actions clearly communicated love and taught a lesson about who we are and what we are doing here. Owensby reflects, love is not a reward for what we do with our lives, it's a gift. The gift that makes this life possible in the first place. Being the beloved is the starting point and the finish line for every single human being. If we lean into that truth, then we will change this world. All of us need a why to exist. We can endure and even overcome just about anything if we know who we are and what we are doing here. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus teaches us that giving away the love we receive freely from God is our why. For whatever reason, we've gotten things turned upside down. We've fallen for the idea that life is about earning love. And plenty of us, at one point or another, assumed we could get that love by achieving and accomplishing and accumulating. Some of us spend our lives pursuing possessions or power or status, figuring these things would make us lovable. The problem is that we can become so obsessed with ourselves that we actually build walls between ourselves and other people. And this same love-pursuing dynamic can take place in our spiritual lives. Plenty of us act as if the depth of our piety, the rigor of our moral conduct, or the orthodoxy of our theology will convince God to reward us. That's just not how God operates. God gives gifts. As my grandmother showed me again and again, this does not mean I'm no good and God loves me anyway. Neither does it mean I'm so good God can't resist me. It just means God makes me the beloved at each instant because, well, God. We exist at all because God loves us. And that goes for everybody. When our starting point is accepting that we are loved, then we can get over ourselves. We are free to consider the needs of others, to give love instead of pursue love for ourselves. This is where the kingdom of heaven begins to be ours. Now, Owensby's grandmother was not imparting new wisdom. 
Instead, she embodied the parable Jesus told that Matthew's gospel wrote down about 2,000 years ago. This parable, also told in Luke's but shaped much differently, is one of three parables from the 25th chapter of Matthew, the last parables this gospel records. Honesty admits these are challenging parables because they contain both good news and hard news, both grace and regrets. So it is with the parables Jesus tells. They are not told to be reduced to a single point, but instead are told to stir our imaginations and stoke life's possibilities. Frankly, every parable Jesus tells creates a crisis for the hearer, a crisis being that intersection of danger and opportunity. Or as James Russell Lowell wrote so perfectly in his 1845 hymn, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new endeavor, offering each the bloom or blight, and the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. As Matthew tells the parable, we get the impression that Jesus loves the grand scale. It is preacher hyperbole at its best, with an image foreign to us, but familiar to first century hearers, an owner of immense holdings is going away and entrusting those holdings to three slaves who, while subordinate to the owner, have managerial responsibility. They are left with staggering sums to steward, 100 years worth of wages. 40 years worth of wages, 20 years worth of wages. In other words, the owner backs up the truck and dumps a pile of riches at their feet. Not equally with each, but gracefully with all. Then the owner leaves town. This owner who had dumped these riches and had done so taking into consideration the abilities of each one so as not to overwhelm any of them, this owner then leaves town quickly. So quickly, in fact, that no instructions are given to, as to what to do with this largesse. It seems rather risky for the owner to have created all this abundance and then simply hand it over. But this is what the owner does. Thinking perhaps that the slaves will do what they have seen the owner do. It's odd that the owner goes away, and yet we know. This reveals a level of trust that is built into creation's design. It is simply the way life is. No child can ever grow into the fullness of life 
if the parent does everything for the child. By no longer being the sole actor in this parable, God imparts a role for humanity in the drama, a setting in which we live under a loving gaze rather than a controlling hand. And it has been this way since Genesis 1. The owner entrusts us with great abundance. It would be a mistake, however, to suggest the owner is indifferent to what those who are entrusted to be stewards do with this abundance. The parable's assumption, or perhaps the owner's assumption, is that those under the owner's care will use what they have been given to delight and to empower others, just as the owner has done. This is who the owner is. This is the way of living in the owner's image. This parable is all grace, all abundance, all joy. So what happened? With the parables Jesus tells, when there are three characters included, we are accustomed to the third actor being the unlikely hero, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan, or the one with the least becomes the one who is lauded. It is exactly the opposite in this parable. And that inversion of style gets our attention. This parable draws attention to the tragic figure, to the one with the least who evokes a stinging rebuke from the owner. What we note is the difference in their speeches. The first two simply say, you handed over to me talents and I'm handing back more. The third offers a stunning assessment of the owner's character in a speech that is three times longer than the other two. It is a speech that makes no sense at all. I knew you were harsh, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter. What? Where does this come from? This owner has done nothing but give and offers nothing but praise and even more opportunity to join in the joy that the owner lavishes by being so generous. And even in response to the third servant's accusations, the owner does not keep the 20 years wages, but even gives them away. It's a reminder that what we hear about God matters, that what we say about God matters. Some years ago, a child told me that he had been told at a summer camp, not one that is sponsored by the Disciples of Christ, I'm thankful to say, but he had been told that God sees him as flawed and worthless and that his life was in danger unless he got right with God by proclaiming faith in Jesus. 
Now, whoever told this beautiful eight-year-old child that is not only being spiritually abusive, but has also never read this parable. Somehow, this tragic third servant had been taught to fear the owner, not trust the owner. It is a reminder of how crippling fear can be. And that when we hear people speak outrageously of faith or life, it is an opportunity to address fear. It is an opportunity to proclaim that God is not hard or cruel or dishonest or untrustworthy. What we say of God matters because what we think of God shapes who we are. Does this third steward think somehow that his life does not matter? Because the grace he has received seems diminished by comparison? God knows there are far too many people who believe their lives do not matter because they've been told that. Or they are relegated by a system that privileges some but diminishes others. The parable says no gift from God is insignificant. No act of generosity matters less. No extension of kindness is unimportant because the practice of faith and the way of religion invests in people and in lives focused beyond the self and not turned inward. Now we know the hard part of the parable, the reaction of the owner to the third servant. Like the parable itself, it is a response on the grand scale. It does not fit. And it certainly is not comfortable. Perhaps this is not so much judgment pronounced as consequence realized. The parable says God is generous and gracious. If someone insists that God is harsh and cruel, then there is no God there to be found. You don't have to be sent to the outer darkness. You are already there. Because God is not to be buried in theologies of vengeance nor religions of scarcity. Apparently, the parable suggests there is room to believe as the third servant does. But the parable also suggests that the way people know God is to live in rhythm with God's generosity and God's abundance shared. None of us does this perfectly. The life of faith is always responding and growing toward the God who, it seems, will court but never insist who will give, but never control. An interesting alternative read on the parable suggests that it should not be allegorized at all, 
but that it depicts an unjust system in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the third servant refuses to participate in a system like that so is cast out and castigated by all those who benefit from such an unjust system. It is an interesting perspective. But whichever way one hears the parable, the crisis evoked, the danger and opportunity present in the parable is the consideration of to whom and to what do we cast our loyalties? To whom and what do we value in life that gives shape to how we live it? Bob Dylan said it this way, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble or you may like to dance, You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We do not pretend for one second, that living into the joy of the owner's generosity carries no risk to it. Of course there are risks. Anytime someone cares or loves or gives or trusts or hopes or reaches across. Some people will not understand living like that. Some people will take advantage of those who do live like that. And there are times when we are not sure about living like that. So Jesus comes along and tells a parable. Jesus comes along and embodies that in the constant tension between grace and regrets, live toward grace. Jesus comes along and says, follow me. In a work entitled, End of the Road, Grant Spradling writes, if I were the creator, most of all, I would want my creatures to live every minute of their life. Not to be so afraid of doing something wrong, that they failed to savor the feast I'd prepared for them. I'd want my people to plant and swim and taste and see and play. And I would be glad you risked loving. Well, Jake Owensby's grandmother understood that. And thanks be to God, so can we.